You are listening to The Dish on Health IT, brought to you by Point of Care Partners, a leading health IT consultancy. Each episode will feature a rotating panel of senior consultants and guests who will talk about trends and innovations in health IT, while also highlighting how organizations can leverage these advances to solve their business problems. Today's episode explores telehealth, the explosion of virtual visits during the COVID-19 crisis, the expectation that usage will remain high following the COVID-19 peak, and its impact on health IT and patient outcomes. Our panelists are Senior Health Information Technology Consultants Gary Austin, Ken Kleinberg, and Jocelyn Keegan. Our guest today is Brian Bamberger. He is the Point of Care Partners Life Sciences Lead and recently led a landscape analysis of telehealth with a focus on creating pharmaceutical company action plans. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that you'll share your topic ideas with us by emailing us at podcast at POCP.com. Good day, everybody, and welcome to the ongoing adventures of The Dish on Health IT. I'm your host, Gary Austin, affectionately known as Lumpy. Uh, We at Point of Care Partners are health IT consultants with 100-plus associates in over 35 states. We work across all stakeholder groups, payers, healthcare delivery, pharma, health IT vendors, and government agencies, and we're viewed as an independent, trusted party, the Switzerland of consultancy. With me on the dish on health IT are my two co-hosts, the lovely and talented Jocelyn Keegan from Boston and the talented Ken Kleinberg from upstate New York. How about a quick hello and opening comments from Jocelyn and then Ken. Josh? Thanks, Gary. Excited to join. Uh, My name is Jocelyn Keegan. I work um, for Point of Care Partners as our uh, practice lead. Uh, I actually spend uh, the majority of my time focused on payer-provider collaboration and topics like uh, prior authorization and overall, uh, really, how do we improve workflows and data exchange uh, between the different stakeholders within uh, health IT. Uh, I've spent about 25 years in IT in general. I spent the first half of my year uh, career in financial services, uh, building product, and um, have been excited to be uh, solving these challenges in health IT for the last 10 years. Uh, really excited to talk today about telehealth and really how do we start to take advantage of a lot of the um, capacity that's been built into telehealth uh, over the, the last decade uh, and really being able to uh, to make it come to fruition and uh, and keep it going as we come out of the COVID-19 crisis. Great. Thanks. And Ken? Yeah. Hello, everyone. Ken Kleinberg here. I serve as practice lead for innovative technologies for point-of-care partners. Uh, about 40 years uh, working in IT, uh, worked as an industry analyst at Gartner, the advisory board, Chillmark, and a couple of health IT vendors. I've always tried to stay at the leading edge of uh, technology. I live here in upstate New York where we're waiting for uh, what could be three or six inches of snow here in the middle of April. Wow, great. Uh, good way to run through April. That's enjoyable. So, uh, and uh, t- today on our uh, panel, on our dish, uh, in addition to our Dish on Health IT gang, today we have our very first podcast guest. So we're keeping it in the house with Brian Bamberger, the uh, Point of Care Practice League for Pharma and Life Sciences. Uh, Brian has an excess of 25 years in health IT, last 10 at Point of Care Partners running our practice, and is a national subject matter expert on pharma. Brian, could you introduce yourself so our listeners can hear your melodious voice and provide a bit of your background? Thanks, Gary. Uh, so uh, appreciate the opportunity to be part of the team today, uh, my first podcast, and uh, l- looking forward to participating in the dis- discussion. I've spent about, uh, you know, the last 25 years, uh, a chunk of time at IMS Health, now Acubia, uh, and other adventures, uh, MediMedia, uh, largely around the pharmaceutical industry, 
uh, and have been involved with electronic prescribing to start with and then EHRs probably over the last 16 or 17 years uh, and uh, the last nine years at Point of Care Partners where I lead the life sciences practice uh, for the organization. So lots of work with pharmaceutical companies uh, and involved in other projects with payers and intermediaries uh, and, and so forth. So glad to be here. Great, excellent. Thank you for joining us today. We appreciate it. So now let's get on with our discussion panel. Uh, as we identified in our last podcast focusing on COVID-19, uh, one of the biggest challenges that we're seeing out there is a massive increase in the use of telehealth to deliver both routine and pandemic-driven services. So Brian, why don't we, uh, let's set the stage here. How do you, how do you go about defining telehealth? Well, uh, Gary, a lot of people uh, use a lot of different definitions and uh, maybe even have some misnomers about what goes into telehealth or start thinking it's only certain components of it. We're going to split telehealth into four distinct uh, uh, groupings. The first is um, virtual visits or televisits or sometimes called telemedicine. You know, and there's really two types uh, of, uh, of activity there. One is when someone sees their regular physician, so they, they have a cardiologist, they have a cardiology appointment, and it, and it happens over uh, a, a virtual visit uh, methodology. And the second, and I think an important distinction, is one that is with an on-demand uh, kind of situation. Maybe the payer sponsors a, a, a service where you can get on-demand instead of going to an urgent care center or an emergency room, you can contact a physician. Uh, see, a, have a visit, maybe a dermatology visit. You don't have a dermatologist. You're able to get one on demand, those kinds of situations. So that makes up the sort of virtual visit or televisit uh, portion of the market. There's also a, a behind the scenes kind of uh, what's, what's a little technical uh, name, asynchronous communications. Essentially, that's messaging, usually between physicians. So maybe your primary care physician in a rural area then goes to uh, get a consult with a neurologist to see if further uh, work is needed. And and so those kinds of neurology consults would be part of uh, asynchronous communications. Provider to provider, and they're going to send information over, maybe some scans, some readings, the background documentation, and they're going to message back and forth, maybe even with video uh, or maybe just audio, uh, and, and send information back and forth. So that's asynchronous communications. Um, the third category is remote patient monitoring. So this would be uh, a blood pressure cuff, uh, continuous glucose monitor, uh, scale, uh, you know, for, uh, say, a, um, uh, a heart patient uh, with heart failure. It might be important to monitor their weight. Uh, so all of those devices might report back to either the physician or a recording center that would provide information back to the physician's office about what's going on. And then the last one is uh, mobile apps. So everyone's familiar with mobile apps, right? So they're going to be apps that you get on your phone, that you download onto your phone and, and use. Physicians have apps that are specifically designed for them. So those categories all make up uh, this, this whole telehealth uh, definition. Um, a lot of the focus today and, and, and has been over the last few weeks have been on telehealth themselves or, yeah, uh, virtual visits rather virtual visits themselves uh, and the uptick that we've seen in the marketplace because folks can't get to the doctor or don't want to go to the doctor um, that need routine care. So so tell me a little bit about these uh, rule changes that CMS has put down around telehealth. It seems like 
all of a sudden telehealth has just exploded. Part of that's, I guess, because of the COVID epi- you know, pandemic out there, but there were some structural rule changes that seemed to just allow this to explode. What can you tell me about that? Sure. In 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 working with the uh, in working with the with the process and the emergency that's going on now, uh, there, the federal health emergency declaration gave CMS uh, and and others uh, some latitude. And so the rule changes I really categorize into three main buckets. The first is that telehealth and especially virtual visits were formerly relegated to the uh, rural health patients not being able to get to a specialist office. And so there were situations where there were uh, a patient might have to travel two hours to get to a a major metropolitan area to see a specialist. And that was reserved for uh, these virtual visits. The second is that the technology that had to be used had to be a dedicated, specialized technology, secure, but dedicated to virtual visits. And the relaxation of the rules there, at first, the relaxation was to be able to use things like Skype or Zoom or other kinds of modes of communication that were secure, not TikTok, right? This is secure communication between the doctor's office. And those pieces were, uh, uh, it was the initial uh, relaxation. And then one more came, which said that it didn't even need to have video in it any longer, that it could just be a phone visit. Uh, because there's some folks that just can't get, uh, you know, the, the equipment to work the right way. They don't have the bandwidth and, and so forth. And then the last component was a reimbursement component. Um, and there, instead of paying a virtual visit at a lower uh, reimbursement rate, they moved that to 100%. So that removed any uh, problem that a practice might have in saying, well, you know, we're losing revenue by not having these patients come in. So we were on the phone, uh, our, our point of care partners team, earlier today with someone who was uh, working in a practice said they weren't able to do every visit uh, virtually but they were they had increased uh, steadily over the last few weeks more and more visits both proactively reaching out to patients and having patients call in and saying they needed support and you know while there are challenges in bandwidth and and so forth there the uptick has been great they think and and that person's opinion was it was going to continue uh, after the, because it's a great way, again, to save on the travel. Uh, some patients, like a, a patient with congestive heart failure, really can't, you know, necessarily make that walk from the parking garage to the elevator, up the elevator, down the hall, all of those components, uh, you know, it adds stress and, and, and taxes their life. So, um, you know, they saw it continuing on as time went on. Or, or if you live in some place where, let's say, three to six inches of snow is falling today, maybe there's a uh, an opportunity to use telehealth there too, especially if you're disabled or mobility challenged or whatnot. So, so how has telehealth changed the industry in say the last 60 days here, basically since the uh, COVID came full full bore? Uh, Jocelyn, how about from your perspective as both a health IT leader and, and also as a public official? Yeah, I think it's interesting. So um, I didn't share in my intro this go round. In addition to working in health IT, I'm actually an elected um, board of selectmen member in my town. Uh, and so I've had this really interesting view into the readiness of all of our local municipalities in readying for um, the challenges really across all aspects of small town government. Um on how to handle, you know, sort of this onslaught of care that's coming towards us. Uh, there's a couple thoughts. Um, I think that um, on the professional side, I get to see um, organizations. I have this really interesting, unique seat 
in, from a DaVinci perspective that I get to see inside of a lot of, I, I would say, our more innovative providers, payers, and vendors in the market. Um, and, and in just in informal conversations over the last month have really been able to understand sort of people stepping forward. So a couple, couple trends I've seen. Um, you know, as we all um, understand, the ambulatory practices are really getting hammered financially by what's happening out in the market, right? Ver visits have, you know, halted. And, and as Brian has described, those practices that are more innovative, that have a strong presence already or had tools um, that were already rolled out have been able to ramp up those capabilities. Um, and I think that the observation is a great one. I'll speak a little bit sort of on my personal life. I was able to convert my kids' annual checkups, right, to a virtual visit. Um, and, and my doctor used a Zoom invite, right, literally sent me an invite five minutes before the appointment, very low tech. Um, but I happen to be a member of a practice that already has capabilities of 24-7 coverage of call-in lines. They're a former ACO, and so they do those things because they're the right things to do to keep costs out of the system. Now what we've given is really a mechanism both from the feds and then from the large insurance plans to actually get compensated for that work. So I agree with Brian. We're moving to a world where people are recognizing that meeting virtually, whether it's um, a telephone call, if that's all that's needed, or a video call, that that's sufficient and that people should be compensated for that work because it keeps people out of practices that don't necessarily need to make the trip into the practice. So I'm encouraged um, that people have sort of flung themselves forward and are figuring out that technology, sort of, you know, um, patient by patient and making it work. I'm also seeing um, organizations, professional organizations. So I get to work with the folks at AHIMA um, because they're really actively interested in supporting the work that we're doing with DaVinci. So I get a lot of their mailings and, and the community aspect of the sharing of information as people understand how payers are coding for specific coverage. Um, just that information that's flowing, sort of best practice cheat sheets between each other and the organizations, um, these large scale associations being able to help sort of disseminate that information as quickly as possible so that provider organizations that maybe don't have access to CMS or don't have regulatory folks to be able to capture this information, they're really doing a great job through their professional organizations of just getting the information in people's hands of what they can do, what they can't do, how to code it so it'll get paid, which is incredibly important, right, for our um, multi-specialty practices, right. primary care practices. And then I would say lastly, um, with my board uh, role, it's been amazing to watch, uh, you know, really on a volunteer basis and using our professionals in town, like our firefighters who are our primary emergency response um, folks, work together to create um, an informal volunteer network of nurses and care providers in our community that are literally manning phone banks and signing up people in town that don't have access to virtual care, literally giving advice and best practices via daily podcasts to our community to tell people, if you don't know what your, te your, your telehealth tool is right now, go figure it out now before you get sick and giving that advice to people and that, you know, people like my parents and my next door neighbor are using words like telehealth um, to be able to mm. understand that this is going to be part of how they get through, you know, the next six, six to eight months and really starting to people starting to use their pay, their provider portals. And then lastly, um, to further that goal of using people in the community to be able to care, we're also seeing, um, we're using funds and grant money to be able to pay for services for, for folks that don't have access to virtual care. You know, the $50 copay for somebody to be able to get that phone call with a, with a provider online if they're not, if they don't have access to a service through their existing insurance company or they don't have insurance. And, uh, and then our, we'll talk a little bit later, but we're continu continuing to see movement of not just virtual visits, but also extending care 
using resources like this in our town to get out to patients and actually care for them in their homes so they don't have to be um, brought into a facility for care. Got it. Excellent. Excellent. Some tremendous insight there. Thank you. Um, it, it's nice to have that public official uh, sort of knowledge too and experience that you're seeing there. Brian, I, I, I've used telehealth a couple times of late, uh, once with my primary care physician and once with my neurologist. Um, both enjoyable experiences. Went well, saved me a lot of time. You know, what was a half hour visit became a, you know, a 20 minute visit and I didn't burn an hour of cycle time getting to and from the doctor and whatnot. Do you, do you see telehealth as being more of a primary care solution or a specialty solution or does it even matter? I don't know that it really matters. I think that, it, you know, it's more of a chronic care uh, kind of situation. I don't know that newly diagnosed patients are going to be happening. I mean, it, it may get to the point where they say, you know what, you may have something we need to diagnose. And we'd like to see you in person uh, to go through that. But th those kinds of visits where, uh, you know, it's a routine check-in, uh, uh, there's a need to, to monitor this patient, um, not necessarily major changes in the care plan um, mm -hmm. necessarily, which, you know, again, my pharmaceutical experience, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it from a pharma lens a little bit saying, oh, this is going to be a different view of of uh, how the how the marketplace is going to evolve. Now they can collect uh, practices can collect more data uh, about a patient, but they may not choose to act on it um, as as clearly as the guidelines might say, uh, because they're waiting for an in-person visit, which might not happen for a bit more. That said, more data is always good. Uh, more check-ins with patients, make sure they're staying on on the course of therapy. So all important components as, uh, as we're going forward. So, uh, you know, all indications are this is here to stay. Got it. Good, good. Ken, you're, you're one of our futurists and lead our innovation practice at uh, Point of Care Partners. Um, do you think telehealth will stay around at these levels post-COVID or could it even expand potentially? You know, I was just looking at a survey of uh, telehealth use and uh, there were a few thousand patients, adults that they surveyed. Of, uh, of these few thousand, about three quarters of them had, uh, not really even been familiar with, uh, with the telehealth option. And of the one fourth that, uh, were familiar, only one out of five had actually had a telehealth visit. On the other hand, of the people who had a telehealth visit, uh, many of them had done more than one. So I think there's a familiarity piece that is starting to play a role here. And as we come out of this, uh, both physicians and patients who aren't familiar with this are going to, to recognize the value. You mentioned, uh, you know, the time that it takes to, to go visit the doctor. One study I looked at showed that, uh, for the 20 minute encounter with the clinician, you were spending two hours as a patient. And, uh, this is clearly much more effective, especially if you can't travel or there are travel restrictions, uh, older people in particular. Here in the Northeast, when the weather can be very bad, I, I once saw a, uh, a video of a, an older couple, and uh, they had moved to a telehealth platform with their doctor, and, and they were literally in tears because in, in the usual circumstance, uh, the wife trying to get the husband down their stairs and out into the car with the ice in the driveway, they just literally couldn't do it. It, it was, you know, the part of the month that, you know, they dreaded, and now this changed the game for them. One of the challenges we have is, you know, the fidelity of these visits. And for this early phase now where we're dealing with COVID, for example, and a lot of these are really the only way to accomplish uh, and, and the 
safe way to accomplish your visit. You don't have all the medical equipment that you need, you know, in the patient's home. But uh, over time, I think we're going to see uh, these kits that are sent out to patients uh, with a a thermometer, you know, digital scale, uh, blood pressure cuff, uh, pulse oximeter, and so forth. For just a few hundred bucks, uh, you can equip somebody. Uh, and if it saves just one uh, hospitalization, you know, you're way ahead of the game with that. Uh, and then other areas like uh, mental health, where we've had a lot of traction with telehealth in the past, I think that will continue, especially now that more people are stressed out and, and have a, a lot of reasons to uh, to have mental health. Uh, challenges. Uh, and then second opinions, uh, you know, that to me, that's a no brainer. Uh, nothing uh, more irritating, I think, than, uh, you know, having to go in for that second visit and the physician says, well, everything looks good. I'll see you again in a month. Got it. Very good. Excellent. Let's, uh, let's talk a bit about uh, how we productionize this, as it were, coming out the uh, tailpipe of COVID. So um, how does a given payer or delivery entity take this telehealth model in the prime time? Uh, first off, let's talk a little bit about financials. So how do both parties, both the payer and the delivery side, make it financially viable to use telehealth path forward? You know, for delivery entities, more visits, but at a lower unit cost or add on telehealth services, charging for that. And on the payer side, can telehealth actually reduce their medical loss ratio? So let's let's start with Brian's perspective here and let the poll each of the three panelists on this one. Brian? Sure. So, you know, we were, uh, as I said a little earlier, we had some folks that, uh, that were actually telehealth providers in a practice, um, and they were using uh, remote patient monitoring. It was a cardio practice, and the remote patient monitoring was being done centrally by the health system. So they didn't have to worry about the technical pieces of all of that data flowing in and, and gathering in a uh, spot and being able to do the analysis of it. Uh, they had the information all flowing in and, and, uh, and an analytics uh, uh, screen made for them that could be uh, snapshotted and sent off. So that, that took a lot of the effort out for the individual practice staff. With getting, you know, can you can only imagine getting, you know, daily weights and daily blood pressure readings, uh, and not wanting to overlook anything that was important, but also that the cuff wasn't on right might create an outlier in any given day in any one observation. So being able to work through that, I think the the reimbursement uh, issue on the uh, health system side is really proving the value that. Uh, by monitoring these patients more closely, by having these interim visits between the official in-person visits, that you're able to avoid bad outcomes. ER visits, uh, you know, uh, more expensive procedures down the line, that you're able to monitor and, and drive this forward. Uh, and I think that's the important component. And that's really the hidden obligation right now on the, on the physician side, the practice side. You know, they've sort of been, you know, uh, Given these relaxed rules, um, and now it's a sort of an obligation to show what they can do with it, because I think this is a, a giant uh, test case for, you know, is this the way it's supposed to work? I think we know that's how it's supposed to work. Now let's prove that that's how it's supposed to work. Josh, what do you Got think? It. Yeah. Josh, talk a little bit about, as you think about value-based care and, and the financial impact of this, because that's really a, a sweet spot for you. 
Yeah, that's exactly where I was going to head. So I, I, I'm going to be a little contrarian to Brian, because I think one of the realities that we're going to deal with coming out of this is just pent up capacity, right? How much demand is there going to be in a system that, you know, any of us that have ever had to schedule a specialty appointment understands is hard to come by to begin with. And I think that this ability to be able to use telehealth as flexible um, capacity management to be able to manage the folks that you can with a phone call, manage the folks you can with video or with video plus sort of supplemental um, tools, um, as Ken described, I think is going to be incredibly important. Um, there's two sort of aspects of this, right, which is the how do I get paid and how do I get permission, right, sort of prior off and sort of payment to make sure that people stay whole. But I think as, as we look at sort of the curve coming out of this and starting to find you know, those people that have been sitting at home getting sicker because they haven't been getting their regular care for chronic care patients, but also just, you know, all the annual checkups, all the skin checks, all, you know, whatever it is, being able to come out of this, and it's going to be in, incredibly important with payers and providers to work collaboratively here together to deal with just the scheduling aspect and really make sure that the right patient gets to the right place for the care level that they need is going to be incredibly important. I think that to me, there are already payers in the market and, and, you know, we see in the news regularly KP reporting on sort of the volume of work that they're doing virtually today with their patient population. I think that the proof is already there. I think to me, it's the nudge to move people forward and to really ask themselves those critical questions about how they're going to deal with this onslaught that's coming towards them and how do they do it in a way that because we are moving into more and more value-based contracts are at the best price point for the right level of care for the patient at any given point in time. And that is something that we're seeing happen between people that are really focused on those partnerships and those moves to value, really having those hard conversations now uh, about, you know, relaxing or extending existing prior authorizations to deal with folks that, you know, are missing appointments or elective surgeries that have been canceled. And that we're also seeing just really grappling with the, you know, how are you using your pharmacist? How are you using your virtual um, uh, capacity that you've got, you know, whether at the payer side or the provider side? And then how are you dealing with, you know, your minute clinic type of um, assets uh, to really be able to deal with all of that demand that's going to be coming coming towards the system. So I'm not as concerned about sort of there being a proof point to show that it works. I think it's more about making sure that we keep each of the players whole as we move forward. And, uh, you know, there are active conversations happening between payer and providers that are already in at-risk contracting about how are they really weathering the storm together. Yeah, interesting. Kind of a, a little spin on that. I've heard some discussion about some payers thinking about maybe just dropping their downside requirements of value-based uh, for six months or nine months or whatever until some of the providers get a chance to flush out uh, post-COVID and things. So that's that's actually a little bit of that conversation going around the marketplace. Ken, how about from your perspective in terms of the financials around this? Yeah, you know, from a payer perspective, one of the barriers uh, has been, well, we're going to pay for this telehealth visit, and it's not going to be very high fidelity, so the patient's going to end up going in to see the doctor anyway, so now we're paying twice. I think that's a little less concern now, and especially we don't want conditions to be untreated for longer and longer because people can't get to a physician and then have it cost a lot more later on. From the provider point of view, uh, one of the big barriers had been the cost of the actual, you know, audiovisual equipment. And uh, you don't have to go back very many years where that stuff was pretty expensive. Uh, you know, today the infrastructure is, is almost free, and uh, that can be a huge savings right there. 
Hey, Gary, I think that there's a, a also a point that, you know, on, uh, the public health emergency that we have in place right now might also, you know, the, there's some thought that this might not be the only one we have, that there might be a future one coming. And I think that we're stepping up the expectations for physicians, practices, and health systems to be able to handle this in stride in the future. That if you don't master it now uh, and have it under your belt, um, you, you're not you're going to be behind the times if this were to arise again uh, and and all of the elective procedures get pushed off, all of the visits get pushed off uh, to start a, a, a patient on a on a new course of therapy. This is definitely going to change the environment. Uh, it's the, you know, sort of that new normal kind of thing people are talking about. Yeah, I, if I could add to that, uh, if you're waiting to the very moment that the televisit starts to try helping the patient as the clinician, you know, this is how you navigate this platform or, or the doctor isn't familiar and, and they're hunting and pecking around, uh, you, you really want to have a bit of a pre-televisit take place where a lot of those issues are worked out, a little practice session, if you will, uh, so that when the clinician is on that uh, encounter is is the most valuable and not bogged down. Ken, I had one one practitioner say it is really difficult to get a 73 year old to point their phone camera at their legs so you could do a diabetes visit and and understand if their injuries and and any issues uh, in their feet or legs uh, are in place. You know, they spend a lot of time looking at the floor uh, right. and, yeah. not the, and not the actual legs. And, and tell me we don't know people who still have flip phones or don't have cameras on their laptops. Uh, so there is an infrastructure at the patient end. You're bringing up a really key point here that has to advance so for this to really take off. Yep. So, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with you guys a little bit because I'm going to tell you each one of us is getting closer to being a 73-year-old every single day. It's just reality, right? And, and when we talk about 70-year-olds today, we're talking about boomers, right? And most of these folks are really well-equipped and are pretty technically savvy. And I think that that sort of that conventional wisdom, I think we can push on a little bit. And if they can't do it themselves, they likely have a caregiver or a child that is available to help them through that. Um, I don't think it means that it's insurmountable, but I have, you know, 40 something year old friends that are just as challenged with their phones as the, as the average 73 year old. Um, I, the one thing I would like to share, and, and again, I, I have this really interesting seat at the table. So we've been talking in town for, since I got elected, uh, about this mobile integrated health platform and really working with our local, um, uh, our local uh, hospital system that's been like everywhere else in the country, acquiring the local practices. My multi-specialty practice was acquired a couple of years ago. And the barrier, everybody agreed that it was great. My town was raising the hand for our fire, firefighters and our VNA to really be, you know, um, pilot users of the system. Um, the, the hospital is about two towns away. Uh, we only hire fire paramedic, firefighter paramedics now um, on our staff and really have capacity to be able to do care here. I think as we look at sort of how the world is headed, the barrier to getting that project off the ground in a large part was sort of which town was going to go first and how were people going to get paid for it, right? So you take what's happening today and that virtually disappears, right? That gets sorted. People figure out a model. And we announced this past week that we're going to literally start using people that are physically on the ground and are the first responders for patients to be able to go in and do some of this initial contact when a virtual call doesn't work or to help somebody do a virtual call. Um, and I think that that is game changing, right? Having a nurse from a call center that's part of our VNA team or our volunteer team talk somebody through their first virtual visit 
imagine trying to get that done six to eight weeks ago. It just never would have happened, right? And, and sort of all of these sort of business process contract issues are sort of just getting pushed through. And I think the onus will be on all of us to make sure we don't backslide coming out of this. Yeah, good point. Very good point. So I, I think the cell phone numbers, if I remember, are something like 90, 93% across the country and smartphone is 85% of that or something like that. So I think just having the tool isn't necessarily a barrier. Maybe competency might be. Um, and some of that's just exposure and whatnot. It's hard to think of any millennials that you know, need somebody to show them how to use the phone or flip the uh, flip the viewer to the other side of the phone or, or whatnot. So, Ken, as a, as a payer out there, you know, there's a lot of telehealth platforms out there. As a payer, do you need to have multiple platforms potentially or is just are you pick one and go? I think that's uh, comparable to a question of how many portals are out there. And uh, you as a patient could be dealing with a payer portal or, or a payer telehealth platform, or uh, one of your providers may have picked a particular uh, telehealth platform. So uh, you'll hopefully be able to adapt to all of those. And it should be great if we could get the industry to consolidate on just uh, uh, one or a few platforms. But I don't think that's very likely uh, just yet. Yeah. Do you guys see a market opportunity for uh, an anti-telemedicine fraud type of app out there, something that's uh, maybe running some AI against uh, telemed recordings and seeing if they were really done or not? Or it just seems like an area that's ripe for fraud. If I could jump on that one, I I was just looking at a study that showed that uh, an audit done by the feds in 2018 on telehealth with Medicare Half of the encounters that were paid for when they went back and looked did not see uh, the adequate documentation to support that payment. Uh, so that's a challenge. And the, uh, the fraud has always been a challenge, I think, with, with telehealth. Uh, you can look uh, on the Internet and see uh, cases where the, the, the fraud is, is literally in the billions. Uh, now, I tend to think that it would be much harder to fake a telehealth visit than just a regular office visit where you claim somebody came, you know, to your location, you know, here you could have potentially, you know, save video and audio, but uh, AI could be used uh, to fake those. So you're right. I think we're going to need some advanced tools uh, to try to, to stop uh, fraud for, for the, for the few who are going to try to abuse this system uh, versus the many that could gain a lot from it. Good. Let me, let me uh, throw out there uh, from a, put on your consumer hats for a second, your patient hats or remember hats, depending on your perspective, right? Uh, is it better for you to do a telehealth visit from your payer's platform, from your provider's platform, and maybe a third party trusted app? Uh, any thoughts on that? Does it, or does it matter in the end? I've got a view on that, but I know Jocelyn wants to go first. Okay. Um, uh, and Jocelyn, why don't you start there? <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a couple of things. I think that all things being equal and data being able to flow and be liquid, it shouldn't matter what platform I pick, right? Mm-hmm. And I think now more than ever, this is my plug for standards, right? Now more than ever, it is critical that wherever patient care happens, that that data flows back to all the parties that are responsible for caring for that patient. And if we can do this with standards, I think you combat the fraud topic that you brought up. I think that you make it able for the patient to pick what works for them on demand at a given point in time best, right, which is really what matters. And I guess probably tying back to the other um, tail end of that conversation, 
it shouldn't matter where I'm getting my care as long as I'm getting the care that I need as a patient. And it should be a free market economy at the end of the day, right? I'm a capitalist by nature. Whoever can provide me the best, richest experience should right. get my consumer dollar, right? But, but I, and I understand you may want to choose a practice that has a telehealth option, uh, but to randomly choose another platform and another physician, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, an asset in continuity of care, right? Okay. And so you could say, well, interoperability says that that other physician can get access to the data, but he doesn't have time in a normal visit to digest you know, all of the data that's been captured about a particular patient and to be able to sift through all of that material. So, you know, I have an earache is unrelated to my uh, diabetes, uh, seemingly. And, and so I can see a physician for an earache and, and maybe get that diagnosed and, and get a, a medication or, or a treatment plan put in place. But if, if I'm having a diabetes event, and I'm a and I and I go see another doctor. How is he going to have the continuity of care that my regular physician or my regular care team, nurses and practitioners that are are within uh, the practice that I normally see? I don't think there's there's uh, you know real value in that outlier visit, if you will, with another physician. I think that's uh, the marketplace and patients are going to be hard pressed to find the value uh, in those kinds of interactions. Uh, will I go to a practice that has the availability of, of that as an option as part of my regular care? Absolutely. Will that be the midnight visit? Um, because I have an earache, uh, and I, and I need to see a doctor on demand. I'm not going to get the continuity of care in that because it will be an outlier physician. Even if my practice arranges the covering physician or the wraparound coverage from a third party service that has those physicians, you just don't get the, 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 that continuity that I think people are going to expect. Um, and so, you know, maybe it's a wait until morning and get that early morning, uh, visit with the uh, first available uh, video, you know, virtual visit. Yeah. I think you guys have this just right. I mean, you, you've got a question of what information is going to be available to the, to the clinician at the, the point of that visit? Is it just a transaction that is uh, attempting, you know, they're attempting to make it as short as possible and they want to access the least amount of information possible? Or do they have access to your EHR, to your pay data? Are you connected out to an HIE where you can pull information from a lot of places? And then at the back end of that, when it's over, when it's documented, where does that information flow? Uh, does it get back to your payer? Does it get back into your EHR? I think that's exactly right. right. I think this is a really incredibly important point, and I think that it really hasn't come in our, our conversation, is that there's really classes of care, right, in situations that are going to be more prone and um, ideal to do virtually. And I think as Brian's discussing, that when you're really looking for that um, patient that's dealing with a chronic condition or a behavioral health issue or whatever it is, that continuity within the practice that you're in is so much more important versus a flu vaccine or an earache, or something that is akin to what you could do at um, a, a local um, health stop. Right. Very good. Excellent. So let me let me I'm taking some notes as we've been talking here. Let me just kind of summarize what I heard. So uh, first, both payers, delivery entities, and pharma companies need to plan for telehealth to be prime time going forward. This is not something that's going away. 
probably going to expand. You're probably going to have to think about how you're going to productionize it in your operations. Probably is going to require some business transformation. And it's likely going to require a whole heck of a lot of interoperability. Okay. So that was one point. I heard that there might be a need for multiple or different telehealth platforms, depending on the, the, what the entity is. So you might need to look at some of those out there. As a delivery entity, you probably need to re-engineer uh, some of your processes, certainly your intake process, where you're used to having a, a, you know, an LPN or an RN do intake and then eventually see a doctor sometime during that visit. For pharmaceuticals, uh, you need to be prepared to support your physician and their practices in the use of telehealth. So this is something that could radically change the scripting uh, process out there and the volume of scripts and whatnot, uh, and also the opportunity to change scripts uh, more rapidly, perhaps, than they are currently. And as a payer, you need to provide a option for those in your delivery network who maybe don't have the wherewithal to get there on their own. So if you're a big health system, you probably got telehealth relatively figured out. It's a question more of expanding it and productionizing it. If you're a standalone, you know, single shingle doc out there or small ambulatory practice, then you may need some help and probably the payer's got to help you with that in order to keep you competitive. So um, let me, uh, how about just some closing thoughts from the, the crew here? Uh, Josh, I'll, I'll start with you. A minute or two of closing thoughts and then we'll wrap up for this session. So I think similar to a, um, a number of the conversations that we're having now um, and we'll have in the coming weeks that I, I think, um, Gary, you do a great job of summarizing. What we're really talking about is what's the business process change management that's happening inside of practices to really reform sort of how and where you're applying your resources. But that's already underway in so many practices across the country, right, as they move into at-risk contracting or value-based care contracting with their payers. So I feel like um, if, if we think about sort of change in the industry as a flywheel, that this is essentially an accelerator to that, right? It's a big shove forward. And the question is, is sort of as we come out of this, how do we um, either ensure that we're putting the resources in the right place or that people are able to make those permanent changes uh, to the way that they actually uh, do patient care in their practices? And I'm, I'm optimistic that it will help. Um, I think we'll see practices that will struggle with it uh, and payers that aren't nimble enough to really support and handle it. But that, um, but for the folks that are innovative and, and are really thinking thoughtfully about this being really business process change and not just a temporary problem, um, they'll be able to succeed. Very good. Brian, as our guest today, what, closing thoughts on telehealth? Well, I, I think the, the real uh, opportunity is to, uh, you know, try and influence and help the adoption of using these technologies to improve the care of patients, whether it be that rural patient who's now accustomed to a, a, a telehealth visit or a virtual visit, or a, um, a patient maybe in inner city who found it difficult to get to the specialist appointment, who now has an opportunity to have a check-in with their physician and the, and the practice staff and the, and the nursing staff there. And so, you know, how do we monitor this and, and really understand what the impact of all of these changes are uh, as we're going forward to prove the value of them um, so that this investment is can be measured uh, and, and tracked over time to, to look at the impact? Very good. And Ken, closing thoughts from your end? You know, in my grandparents' generation, uh, doctors made house calls. And uh, sadly, the hospital is where you went to, to die. And uh, today... Telehealth is effectively becoming, you know, the 21st century version of a 
of a house call and uh, where you're surrounded by your, your, your family and loved ones. And uh, I think in our COVID challenge right now, uh, we're going to see the value of this and it's going to really turn a corner. Nice. Very nice. Uh, thank you all. Well, that's our time for this edition of The Dish on Health IT. Many thanks to my co-hosts, Jocelyn and Ken, our inaugural guest, Brian Bamberger, for taking time today to join us. And thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back in a bit with the next edition. Please subscribe to us at whatever podcast carrier you use. If you have any speaker thoughts or you have comments or suggestions on this podcast, please email us at podcast at pocp.com. Goodbye for now. And remember, Health IT is a dish best served hot. Thank you and good day. Thank you for listening. If your organization needs help understanding the shifting telehealth landscape and developing an action plan, reach out to us at info at pocp.com.